You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Here in Honolulu, the Japanese Council General's Office is welcoming guests who wish to sign a book of condolence for a slain former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. He was gunned down last week on the eve of an election. Secretary of State Antony Blinken stopped in Japan to pay his respects. Joining me this morning to talk about Abe is uh, HPR News Director Bill Dorman. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. You know, that initial shock, absolute electrifying shock and and sadness. The sadness is lingering uh, in Japan. As, as you mentioned, they, they had the election over the weekend. Uh, the Liberal Democratic Party, Abe's party, gained seats in the upper house of the Diet. Half of the uh, of the chamber was was running for election. Uh, the LDP now has a two thirds supermajority with its coalition parties. So basically, on the political front, LDP set for an even more dominant role uh, leading this coalition government. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. Um, and yet so much of the vision of the LDP's policies, the Japanese government's policies, uh, go back to the vision of, of Shinzo Abe, for sure. And you had the opportunity to uh, cover him when you worked at Bloomberg in Japan, so mm. you got a good sense of the man. A little bit early on, this was in his uh, in his first term, which was at a time when Japanese prime ministers were not staying very long um, and he had uh, he stepped down for for health reasons he had a, a, a very painful bowel uh, issue that he then got medication for and that sort of allowed him to come back later um, as, as prime minister and that was in 2012 not still close enough to the 2011 Fukushima disaster that that really uh, was something that rocked the entire country and that, that he came out of. You know, Abe himself, everyone by now has heard he's the longest serving prime minister in Japanese history. But it's also, it's not like he was out of politics when he stepped down as prime minister. He stayed in Japan's parliament, the Diet, uh, after he left the prime minister position, was still a member of the lower house when he was shot and killed. But that powerful voice in Japanese politics you see his influence not only in policies, but in personnel as well. Kishida, the, the prime minister, was foreign minister in Abe's cabinet for five years. The current defense minister is actually Abe's brother. The head of the Bank of Japan was appointed by Abe nine years ago. And his influence really stretches on policies domestic and, and international as well. So how, how was he regarded um, by uh, you know foreign governments? It's, uh, you know, that's always a, a sort of a, a difficult or a mixed question, I should say. Uh, so certainly the United States, very strong uh, ally. Part of what he wanted to do and did was was develop a broader international role for Japan, larger and more active role for the military. So his administration increased defense spending, led changes in law to allow Japanese self-defense forces be involved with operations with allies. Uh, Japan increased military purchases. So at the end of 2018, it announced plans to buy an additional 100 F-35 stealth fighters from the U.S. That's a uh, single-engine stealth fighter jet first put into the service in the U.S. in 2015. The next generation for U.S. services, close allies, uh, a couple of Japanese destroyers now have started conversions. One, I think, is, is complete to handle helicopters. Aircraft can land vertically. Um, Japan hasn't had an aircraft carrier since World War II. And a lot of among some Asian neighbors, uh, there was an unease, I think, in terms of Japan, a, a military Japan, a rearming of Japan. Um, but uh, again, that that was part of the picture. Um, but Abe wanted to revise the Constitution to allow broader use of military force. Article 9, the Japanese post-war Constitution, outlaws war as a means of settling disputes and keeping the military to self-defense. Abe wanted to do what he called normalizing Japan as any other major power. Um, that, as, as you mentioned, very controversial in parts of, uh, in parts of Asia and also within uh, some, uh, some political elements in Japan as well. Well, you know, the uh, 
One thing that I remember is uh, uh, Shinzo Abe's trip to Hawaii when he was here for the 75th anniversary of the bombing. And uh, I just, just hearing the history again, just, you know, just really made you think how remarkable uh, and how far we come since that time. It's true. And Abe, uh, people forget sometimes that Abe came to Pearl Harbor. He also hosted Obama, who's the first president to visit Hiroshima in, in Japan. And that that international history and context um, was part of Abe's legacy as well. I think he, he played a key role in putting together the quadrilateral security dialogue, the quad. Uh, he started that back in 2007. This is Japan, the United States, Australia, and, and India. He was the first uh, Japanese prime minister to address the U.S. Congress. He was the first Japanese prime minister to address the Australian parliament, um, traveled to India frequently, traveled to also played a role with the release of North Japanese citizens who had been held hostage by the North Korean government. Uh, very wide-ranging uh, time in office, certainly. And his family, I understand, is having a private wake, um, you know, I guess as they traditionally do in, in uh, services there in Japan. Yeah, it's, you know, it's not a political point, but uh, his wife, Aki, he clearly had very close relationship. They didn't have any children, um, but it's been in the Japanese media this week. He told friends earlier this year that he looked forward to eventually retiring from politics getting a camping van and traveling around Japan with his, uh, his wife. Um, so Abe, uh, certainly his influence is going to linger for a very long time. Yeah, and we'll be looking for clues uh, from the Japanese government about the protocol and whether types of uh, memorial services um, might be held. But thank you very much, Bill. You bet. We have been talking with HPR's news director, Bill Dorman, about the assassination of Shinzo Abe, former prime minister of Japan. And as a reminder to those who may wish to sign a book of condolence, the, the consul general's office on the Pali will welcome the public today and tomorrow uh, to pay their respects as Japan prepares for Abe's funeral services. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're setting the Wayback Machine to 1847, taking a look at the beginnings of stage dramatic arts in the Kingdom of Hawaii. Honolulu's first theater was founded on the corner of King and Mauna Kea Streets in an adobe building leased to Charles W. Vincent's homegrown stock company. Vincent was an amateur actor and carpenter. Some of the renovations he included after occupying the building uh, was a stage, box seats, and a section of cheap seats in the far back known at that time as the pit. Ticket prices started at 50 cents for pit seating and a dollar for a box seat, which included the comforts of a pillow cushion. There were front boxes for unattended ladies and Hawaiian royalty, and prior to this, theatrical productions were held aboard ships or in parlors or in parks. Today's question is pretty simple. Can you tell us the name of this groundbreaking performing art space? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neweet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NeweetHawaii.com. There is no way to sugarcoat this. The next phase of construction on the rail line uh, may be miserable. It involves moving power lines, sewer, water, and gas lines. It may be, it will be something more to complain about besides the cost and the delays in the operation of our $10 billion train. This week, Wednesday, the community and businesses will get a chance to learn more about what to expect as work is beginning on the last leg from Ivalle to the downtown Civic Center, which is bounded by South Street and Halikowila Street. We met with Hart CEO Lori Kaikina Friday afternoon at the Middle Street Transit Center to talk about what's to come. The next phase of construction that we're starting right now is the city center utility relocation. We call it CCUR3. Colucho is our contractor and they're going to be relocating the utilities between Ivalle and Cook Street. We are going to be disrupting and, and being um, you know, disruptive to their traffic and to not just the vehicle but the pedestrian coming into their businesses. So apologizing up front. It's going to be an inconvenience, but we're going to try and make it as pain-free pain free as we can by being open and honest and communicating. Uh, Coluccio is responsible to communicating to the businesses and residents in the area, but I've asked hard staff to augment to make sure we do better public outreach to get the information out there. Okay, so uh, as far as the hours of uh, disruption, what can you tell us? And so they are mostly going to be working daytime hours, 8 to 3.30, but if they want to add a second crew, they can. So that will go into the evening hours, but I believe they're going to stop around 10 to and between 10 and 8 in the next morning. Okay, and then what about noise? What, what can people expect? Right, so actually Coluccio has a monthly business and community outreach meeting. It's the second Wednesday of every month. It's a Zoom call. Just have to call, call in and they give detailed information of what they're going to be doing upcoming, like a three-week look-ahead schedule, what noise impacts, what traffic impacts uh, people can expect. But it will be noisy at night sometimes. The They have a jet grouting plant which makes noise, but they're hoping to not use it at night. Some of the um, jackhammering they want to do during the daytime, but if we start falling behind schedule, it could be done during the evening. And, and so as far as the uh, initial work that has to be done, I mean, you know, we're saying utilities, but are we talking gas lines, sewer lines first? Do we, do we know what, what's the plan? Right, and actually, so that tuning into that meeting from Coluccio, they detail out what they're gonna do, but it's not, um, let me try and explain it to the public in that it's not gonna be just from west to east, they're gonna be working methodically. They are going to break it down by the type of work. So if they're going to be saw cutting the, the road, they're going to be doing it here um, at this location, further down another block and another block. It's not necessarily we're only going to saw cut here, dig it up, relocate the utility. Okay, next patch. No, they're going to be all over. So uh, like I said, it's going to be painful, but we'll try to keep everyone informed as best we can. Are there going to be detours, uh, major detours off the main route? Yes, there will be detours and everything is going to be approved by the city. We have to do traffic control plans, so and I, they have to give enough notice that this is what the detour is going to do. And we just had a couple of uh, uh, big water breaks, you know, Ernie Lau, Ernie you know, Lau. had to apologize for that, <laughs> yes. but things happen. And so, yeah, well, what, what's the contingency plan? If something breaks, yeah. oh yeah, we're just gonna have to work um, hand in hand with the utilities if something unforeseen happens. Right before this uh, interview with you, Catherine, I was on a, we have a bi-weekly, every two week meeting with all the city departments and, and the third party utilities. We call it our CCR task force meeting. And every two weeks we're meeting. So we met with them prior to construction starting with Coluccio. 
but we know once Coluccio starts digging up the road, we're gonna run into something unforeseen underground. That sewer line is not where the Asbilt say it is. So the point of this task force is, okay, there's a problem here, how are we gonna address it? And as a team, we come up with a solution so that Coluccio can immediately keep keep going, keep working, instead of stopping, waiting for two months of redesign, and then get back to work. So the city departments and third-party utilities have been wonderful in working with us, and, and, and they, they bring their highest levels to those meetings so that decision makers are on the call. And this leg of the, the of work, um, you put a pause on it oh, because we still had to do some work on the on the Mauka shift. Yes, so what yes. can you tell us about the changes for that? Okay, so the Mauka shift is complete as far as the utility designs. We are already out on the street for procurement and we are hoping to award this contract before the end of the year. So the Dillingham businesses are not anticipated to be impacted this year. I would think construction shovel to ground is gonna start first quarter of next year. And that one is also gonna be very painful. Okay, so we just we just need to know that this last leg is yes. not going to be fun. People are are uh, well, yes. are not, aren't going to like it. They aren't going to like it. Um, but um, we were on another radio show on Wednesday, and a business owner, Starkey, called up to say that you know we understand we understand this has to be done, and we're supportive of it. But communication is key. The last time around. It started off great, but communication started to break down. Accurate information was not being shared, so we have to do a better job going forward. And I've asked Joey and his team and whoever that next contractor is, we have to make sure we keep the businesses informed because we're impacting them. Right. I mean, we kind of had this experience over in Waipahu. Where, where are we at, the, the work to date? Okay, so most of the construction that's happening right now is on our airport guideway stations. So that's from Pearl, the four stations is Pearl Harbor Airport, Lagoon and we are standing here at Middle Street and the guideway itself, just the concrete segments are done, 100% done. So that's the first 15 miles of this system. They are doing the track work on top of the guideway. Those four stations, each of them are between uh, 75 to 85% complete. So we are slated to be done before, I think, I wanna say actually first quarter of next year but then the core systems group needs to come in after that. That's the communications with um, the rail operations center. Uh, and where are we at with the train testing? So trial running, we've been working with Hitachi. They have to do pre-trial testing and commissioning. So they're not done with that yet. We are hoping to go into trial running in the August timeframe. And I've been pretty public that we need to get through that with 90 days without any issues. And we are still, still trying our hardest to get it over to the city before the end of the year, but it may spill over to next quarter if we run into issues and we have to start that clock over again. But we want to get into revenue service and we want to get that first segment handed over to the city as soon as we can. We're looking good for the August, September timeframe to go into trial running as long as that preliminary testing is done by Hitachi and we need to approve, HDOT and DTS needs to approve all the documentation they submit and then it's that it's that 90 day trial running that you know it's never been done here. Um, we're testing DTS staff, HART staff and Hitachi staff to make sure that we know what we're doing is, is correct and everyone is going to be safe so I'm worried about the 90 days. Yes. <laughs> all right so there's a chance that we, this may uh, not get transferred over to the beginning of the year yes. uh, of next year but yes. at least people are yes. know that that could come. Yes correct. Um, let's see what else. Um, recovery plan? What was that? Recovery plan? Oh yeah that's right. Okay. Yeah, you, you submitted the recovery plan uh, where are we at with that? Yes, so we submitted the recovery plan. Actually, let me back up. The point of a recovery plan is when a project goes off track, sorry for the pun, uh, we, could not, we could not show that we had the funding to get all the way to Ala Moana. So FTA was very much aware of this. They wrote me a letter back in December saying, we are open to amending the full funding grant agreement. Get your recovery plan into us by June 30th worked very hard with our stakeholders, DTS, FTA. We got it in with approvals from city council and our board about a month ahead of schedule. So we, subsequent to the submittal, FTA has been in communication with us, with their consultant, 
and they haven't questioned anything about the truncated scope it's more the financials they want to make sure that the estimates we have in there our financials um, assumptions that we have in there are adequate so uh, we're just waiting for feedback from them okay you haven't got any feedback yet other than additional questioning so okay how did you come up with this assumption they even spoke to dotax at the state how did you come up with the growth for get and tat in the future so we got over that home because oh okay now they understand how we how we made our assumptions so I think they're just processing right now. And what's the latest on the, the GET? I mean, you know, the economy's bouncing back yes. uh, much faster than anyone imagined. We keep praying that it keeps bouncing back higher. We assumed based on the last 10 years of actuals that we collected pre-COVID up to 2019, 10 years, which included a recession, for GET, the growth rate was 5.8%. And TAT was 9.1%. So we have some board members that feel that's too conservative that you know we're going to go through the roof and but we have another board member that says no that's too aggressive but we feel confident with our numbers because we have dotax you know backing us up saying use these last 10 years of actual numbers coming in so anything above and beyond that that's perfect that extra funds can go towards do, go trying to get all the way to ala moana or beyond so Right now, I think we're we're pretty confident in our numbers and our assumptions. We're going to be um, hopefully higher than the 5.8 and 9.1. So for each year going forward, the GET will grow by 5.8 percent every year. So we assume that all the way to the end of Act One funds, which is 2030, and the same thing for TAT, the state, uh, the the Act One TAT, we assume 9.1 growth rate per year. The city. Uh, our Oahu TAT that we just um, got approval from from City Council that one we assumed also the 9.1 rate growth over the the years but we are just hopeful that the numbers coming in surpasses that 5.8 and 9.1. Fingers crossed that was Lori Kaikina CEO of the Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation and we will hear more about the rail construction timetable tomorrow. Our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Today looks at the thousands of job vacancies at the city and county. Reporter Kirsten Downey joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yes. So the headline, the city needs 3,000 workers. That's a lot of vacancies. Yes, the city is begging. Please apply. <laughs> yeah, the city is budgeted for 11,668 slots. And... We have more than 3,000 vacancies right now. That's a 26% vacancy, very large vacancy. It means the workers that are there are really working double time trying to fill the gaps. And it also means a lot of us are spending time waiting for services that take longer to happen. I thought it was interesting in your story, you talked about the summer fund programs that were actually serving 2,000 fewer ki- uh, children this year. This is really unfortunate. Yeah, the city, uh, de- uh, the city uh, department of parks and recreation had hoped to be able to serve an additional two thousand kids, and they just couldn't do it. Yeah, just not enough staff. Uh, and HPD, Honolulu Police Department. Uh, you know, we've been hearing about the hundreds of uh, openings that they've got. Uh, yeah, there's a, a huge uh, vacancy on the staff. And we've typically talked about the sworn officers, and we've known for a while that they were down 300 to 350 uniformed officers. But they're also down by hundreds of workers in the other parts of the department, too. They're the people who answer emergency calls or manage the databases. You know, whenever we watch a crime show and we look to see who this backup support is for the police, we're also missing hundreds of those workers, too. So that's a, a, that it goes far to explain why so many people around the island have a sense that uh, when there just aren't enough police and they are uh, not there in doing enforcement the way they'd like. You know, and your uh, story also highlights uh, the shortages in facilities uh, maintenance, uh, you know, which deal with our city roads, that kind of thing, and and environmental services. They're the folks that pick up the, the trash and handle the wastewater. 
Yeah, in both of those departments, they're down by a third of their workers. They're both missing hundreds of workers. And what's especially hard for them are a lot of the jobs are very skilled workers, and we need a special kind of worker to step forward who's able to handle um, uh those technical kinds of jobs. Um, And so the city is uh, doing its best to recruit. In fact, I had a long interview with uh, Mayor Blangiardi about this um, early on when he uh, took up the reins of government. Um, He told me he was blindsided by the extent of the the gaps in the workforce that he found. It was an issue that had never really been discussed on the campaign trail. And yet when he got in there, he found that he couldn't get things done that he wants to get done if he can't fill these positions. That means not just filling the positions, it means reforming and streamlining the hiring process, which people tell me have become almost ridiculously antiquated. Um, There are, in fact, uh, some departments that continue to uh, try to uh, process candidates um, only by mail. Um, And I heard reports about people having to wait, you know, a qualified construction manager who was very eager to start with the city right away, uh, put in his application, waited three months before he got a letter in the mail saying they would be interested in hiring him. This is not fast enough to hire somebody who's qualified and somebody who has his own bills to pay. You know, when I was talking to uh, Department of Planning and Permitting this morning, uh, I was told that they have a, a slot they've been trying to fill, uh, which is problematic because one of the requirements is you have to know how to take shorthand. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll be waiting a while on that yes. one. Um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've noticed again and again, clearly our Department of uh, Planning and Permitting is one of our most troubled city departments. And there was... There was a good report in KITV recently um, saying that it had been two two decades since significant hiring had been done in that department. The good news is that the uh, the department has been budgeted to hire 80 more people this year and 80 more beyond that in the next three years. And hopefully some of this terrible backlog will get filled in and permits can be approved more quickly, which would allow more homes to be built, housing that we desperately need. Right, and enforcement of rules uh, because there are so many complaints about, uh, uh, you know, monster Airbnbs homes and Airbnb. You and got monster it. homes, right, without staffers to go out and enforce the law, we can't get it done. Yeah, well, um, good story highlighting uh, just the, the problems that we're having. And, and, you know, they have to cut city services if we don't have enough people. But thank you so much, Kirsten. Thank you so much. That was reporter Kirsten Downey with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Matthew McKay, author of Seeking Jordan. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how I learned the truth about death and the invisible universe. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Highway Inn Hawaiian Food, now hiring cooks and servers at its Kaka'ako and Waipahu locations. More information and application form at myhighwayinn.com. We 
we've been hearing a lot about our economic recovery, but how are bars and restaurants faring? Well, the food and uh, service industry is one of the most impacted by the pandemic. They faced restrictions on capacity, vaccination checks, and guess what? Now there's inflation. Uh, HBR reporter Casey Harlow sits down with us today. Good morning. Good morning, yes. And not only all those things in general, but also staffing. Uh, even the, if you remember back, like all the way last year, it seems like forever ago, but also the prices uh, or, you know, the benefits of it. People like shopping around, seeing like if they could get, you know, $18 an hour, $20 an hour. And there was that competition as well. But yes, the story um, kind of focused on how uh, the restaurant industry and service industries are doing now that, you know, we are seeing near pre-pandemic uh, levels of arrivals. But not only that, but record amount of visitor spending, you know, and just to go over the last three months of reports, uh, in May, visitors spent $1.56 billion here in the state. That is an 11% increase compared to May 2019. In April, $1.32 billion. That's 21% increase. And in March, it was a $1.53 billion uh, you know, spending. And so with all that spending going on, we know that hotels uh, are now more expensive than ever here in Hawaii. But also, like, what are these restaurants doing? Are they actually making way and paying back uh, the the rent that was, uh, you know, accruing uh, over the pandemic? Uh, is that benefiting, you know, these um, workers that they are work uh, here in restaurants? And so um, I spoke with Ryan Tanaka, who's the CEO and managing partner of Giovanni Pastrami in Waikiki, and he's also the chair of the Hawaii Restaurant Association. He said in the first five months, 38% jump on and in sales uh but again success isn't being felt everywhere uh spoke with a small business owner uh circled back to christopher cook i interviewed him in september of 2021 when the safe access oahu program was around and how he his business was uh kind of complying and trying to figure out you know what he needed to do in order to stay open, you know, checking vaccination status of, you know, making sure that his uh, visit, uh, his um, customers were good to go as far as, you know, dining or, you know, consuming uh, his beer. And so um, it, it was just a circle back around of just figuring out like, where are these people now? And, you know, 2022, we're seeing all these things of like the inflation, staffing, the war in Ukraine, supply chain issues are still a thing. And so for Cook, this is uh, basically what he had to say. Barley is an interesting thing with what's going on in Central Europe. A lot of our barley isn't coming through. The German varieties are much harder to get. And we like to use those German pilsners in several of our beers. So we might have to transition into some Canadian malts or some American malts pretty soon. Oh, the price of stainless steel is, is crazy. We were buying all new kegs, and the, the price of the kegs have gone up 50%. And stainless steel, is there's some weird stuff going on with stainless steel in the world right now. But everything is more expensive, um, so everything's definitely getting pinched, you know. And we're trying really hard to not, you know, raise the price to the consumer, and, and hopefully we can hold on to that. Yeah, and weren't they having trouble with uh, uh, cans? Uh, yeah, exactly. Cans are, are another thing as well with supply chain issues. And not only that, uh, also, you know, with the whole thing with steel that he was mentioning, you know, steel's kind of uh, going through this weird phase. And there's also aluminum uh, that's kind of going through an interesting phase right now. Only thing that hasn't really uh, affected him, uh, we've been hearing from, uh, you know, in the national market, you know, in the continental U.S. Uh, about rent going up. So far, his rent hasn't gone up, so that's a good thing that he's not feeling right now. Uh, and his brewery is based in Kalihi. He acknowledges that it's not a prime location, uh, but luckily, uh, with he was able to start a little wholesale distribution network. So he has, uh, you know, vacancies like on taps uh, in Waikiki breweries or in local places like that, and also selling his beer in, say, Village Bottle Shop or. Uh, these other uh, retailers as well. Um, and then I spoke with um, T Ryan Tanaka, uh, chair of a uh, Hawaii Restaurant Association, and he's also saying that, you know, it may take a while for businesses in neighboring areas and neighboring communities to kind of feel this, but we've also seen, um, you know, 
mom and pop shops closing because of inflation. And so he acknowledges that, yes, there is still struggle that is going on in our uh, service industry. I think everyone across the board is struggling and they're concerned. While you know many are optimistic and they're opening new restaurants, they're cautiously optimistic because there could be another strain. You know what happened last summer was we saw blockbuster sales during the month of July, and then when summer ended, and we got hit with Delta, that changed everything. Right, it slowed down the Christmas season, and then right after we got hit with the Omicron. So, I think people are guarded right now in their feeling of optimism. And we'll see what happens because uh, the Japan market has reopened two weeks ago. Uh, New Zealand uh, resumed its route uh, last week. And both those markets uh, before the pandemic ranked first and second slash third uh, in visitor arrivals and visitor spend. Yeah, and we have the variant BA5 circulating and uh, lots of people getting sick and lots of staff calling in sick. So it's a struggle. But thank you so much, Casey. We have been talking with HBR reporter Casey Harlow. To read more of his stories, go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We've got updates on the James Webb Space Telescope and some of the incredible test pictures it's been taking. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence for your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive and fascinating universe surrounding our tiny planet. And as usual, we are thrilled and very grateful to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. And he's back right now in Stargazer. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week, Stargazers, the morning sky continues to be graced by the presence of Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Look to the east and south to see this parade of planets. The moon this week is passing through its full phase, and so spotting those faint objects in the heavens will be very challenging indeed. I know something that will not be challenging at all, however, and that is uh, we keep Chris very much on the radar for the James Webb Space Telescope updates and he has one for us today, yeah? Yes, very exciting stuff. The James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, is about ready for business. Recently, engineers have been undertaking the commissioning phase for the telescope, which will bring it into full science operations. During this apparently mundane technical exercise, the observatory was able to take a series of throwaway test observations, one of which just so happens to be the deepest, most detailed view of the universe ever taken by a space-based observatory, surpassing even that of the Space Telescope. This incredible deep field image of galaxies and stars gives us an exciting glimpse into the future of space-based astronomy. Wow, that is very exciting stuff. Indeed. The image itself was a result of exposures totaling around 72 hours worth of observing time. And it may be surprising to many folks that despite this achievement, there is still some refinement to go. Future science images from the observatory will have to undergo processing to be science ready, so to speak. So help us out with that processing, as you like to say, from that part of the world. (laughs) Well, when we obtain images of objects in the heavens, we have to perform image processing on them in order to obtain the purest, cleanest science data from our targets. This means eliminating noise from the images that can be caused by the spacecraft, the instrument, and also from the sky and object itself. And when have they scheduled that to be happening? (laughs) Well, you'll be excited to know that the first full-color science images from JWST will be released this week, and no doubt they will be stunning. This will herald in the first round of actual science from the telescope and a new cracking era in space-based astronomy. Cracking. Is that another British Britishism? (laughs) It is indeed. Uh, It's Christopher Phillips and another fun and uh, educational stargazer. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can look for that at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com.
In today's Backyard Quiz, we took you back to the inception of Honolulu's first theater back in 1847. It was an adobe building located on the corner of King and Mauna Kea Streets. It was leased to Charles W. Vincent, who renovated the space to feature his company of amateur actors. Uh, The first attraction was the double bill of the adopted child and Fortune's Frolic, which enticed Honolulu patrons to the new venue. Tickets ranged from 50 cents for the cheap seats in the pit to a dollar for box seats. Big money for the time. Box seats were usually reserved for unattended ladies and Hawaiian royalty. Kamehameha III was known to often host a box, as well as political advisors John Young and Robert Wiley. However, the thespian, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz, was only open for one season. Its success caught the attention of Honolulu businessmen who sought to cash in on the budding arts industry by building their own venues. And we had no winners today. We stumped you on that one. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Oahu's bike share program, Biki, is celebrating its fifth anniversary this month. It was launched by the nonprofit Bike Share Hawaii in 2017 with 1,000 bikes and 100 self-docking, uh, self-service docking stations throughout downtown Honolulu, uh, which were called Biki Stops. The ridership that first year, over 350,000. Five years later, Biki has grown to 1,300 bikes at over 130 stops, stretching from Dole Cannery to Kapilani Community College. The conversations Russell Subiono sat down with Bike Share Hawaii's Senior Marketing Manager, Kelsey Kulpitz, to look back on the last five years. What kind of ridership have you seen? So we've had just over 5 million rides, 5.3 million, and we're probably on record to do about a million this year. About maybe two-thirds of all those rides are taken by Oahu residents. So we've seen more local use than I think was initially expected. After our first year, we were ranked the eighth most used bike share system in the country. And then for the past four years, we've been the sixth. So we're doing really well considering Hawaii was a little bit late to the game as far as bike share goes. And since we are kind of a small scale compared to the larger players like New York and D.C., 2019, we surpassed a million rides that year. That, that's been our strongest year to date. Obviously, COVID in 2020 slowed yeah. down, but we were definitely expected to reach at least a million and a half in 2020. And you mentioned that two-thirds of our ridership are local people. Is there any data on why they're using it? Yeah, so we do a member survey every other year. It kind of tells us a lot about why riders ride and how they benefit from the system. In our last survey in 2020, we found that 79% were using Beaky strictly for exercise. And I think that was a bit of a COVID-driven because our previous member survey was only 56%, so it increased by over 20% said they use Beaky for exercise. And I mean, that makes sense. Gyms were closed. People were trying to find socially distant ways to get exercise and and stay healthy. We also find that about 60% use it for commuting to and from work, and about 75% use it for shopping and dining and, and recreation. Do you know if there's a way to gauge the impact Peaky has had on Honolulu in the last five years? Can we tell if it's helped ease traffic or if it's impacted the health of riders? I would love to say yes. I don't think we can we can know for sure. Mm-hmm. But we do have some impact measurements from our, our survey. We found that 49% of members say they drive less since signing up for Beaky. And 11% say they've even reduced the number of cars in their household, which is pretty incredible. I mean, if we're able to encourage people to go from a two to a, a one-car household and kind of figure out different ways to, to get around and 
just reduce people's reliance on single passenger vehicles. We feel very, very accomplished. Found that 58% of our riders say they've saved money, and that definitely makes sense. I mean, parking, gas, maintenance. And we found also the the health impacts, including 57% say they exercise more often since they've joined Beaky, and 30% say they've lost weight. Which is which is pretty incredible that almost a third of our riders say they've lost weight, and that's kind of simply by incorporating a few more bike trips into their daily life. So, I mean, all of that it kind of adds up. So we're definitely very proud of those impacts, and of course, we can kind of convert our like miles and our system data to learn more about how we've impacted Honolulu as a whole. Last year, there were 18.8 million minutes ridden on Beaky Bikes, and that translates to about 2.4 million miles traveled, almost 3 million pounds of carbon dioxide avoided, and 96 million calories burned just by riding. Five years ago, when Beaky was rolled out, I imagine there was a large part of the population that embraced it. But I also know with change comes some resistance. I know when Beaky first rolled out, there were some people who were upset over some of the docking stations occupying our already limited street parking. I mean, starting new and, and trying to explain what it is and how it can benefit, it's a little bit hard to understand before the system actually gets put into place. I mean, when we installed the first round of stations in 2017, there were a few issues and, and businesses were upset and were like, oh, you can't take our, our parking spot right out front. And I mean, now and even a year later, businesses were, were asking for it. And they, they realized like, oh, wow, this one parking spot that they replaced can actually bring in 10 more Beaky riders, bike riders. And BikeShare has proven to stimulate local economies. It brings people back down to the street level. It helps people find things that they may not have otherwise discovered if driving by in a car. In our member survey, we actually... 56% of our members reported having discovered a new business since joining Beaky, which is kind of an interesting and, and unexpected fact, but it is true. It, it fosters more of a community feel. I know for myself, when Beaky first rolled out, I was worried that there would be vandalization and theft. I, you know, I know uh, bikes are things that are regularly stolen, just bikes in general. Has BikeShare addressed those issues? Does that continue to happen? Yeah, unfortunately, it does continue to happen. And vandalism and theft did pick up during COVID. But we we do work very closely with HPD. They've been very helpful in, in kind of prosecuting those those individuals. And also just the, the Beaky community as a whole has been super helpful. They'll call us and be like, hey, we saw an unattended bike outside this store and we'll and we'll go and pick it up and, and kind of return it. So kind of the community looks out for us. And I mean, they're, if they're relying on the bikes, they have a reason to want to make sure the bikes are working when, when they want to ride it. Five years, that's a pretty significant amount of time. And, you know, five years, that includes, you know, two years of a pandemic in it. When you look back at the time that Beaky has been here, are there any highlights? Is there something really cool that has, that has happened or, or that really cool that Beaky has been part of over the last five years? As a nonprofit, we're able to apply for grants and kind of start up programs that give people more access to bike share or kind of help spread awareness and, and make it more equitable for the communities. In our first member survey, we noticed that only 20% were over the age of 50 years old. So we, we were thinking, how can we, how can we kind of increase access among our older adult population? So we applied for a grant with AARP called Beaky Social Rides, and we held rides a few times a week with Hawaii Bicycling League around Ala Moana Beach Park. And that just kind of helped people get back on the bike. Some people hadn't been on the bike in 20 years or so, and it kind of broke that barrier down and made it more of like a social fun thing. So we we increased that significantly. I believe it was close to 35% in our last survey. So definitely finding opportunities to to grow and expand and 
give more people access to bike share has been among the, the highlights of the past five years. I love that image of our seniors getting back on a bike and just just having a good time. What's in store for the future? Are there any plans for expansion to other parts of the island or to other islands? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we are always looking to grow. Right now, we're just in urban Honolulu. Kona also has a small bike share system. They're kind of a sister system. They don't use the same equipment. But in the future, I think one of the main goals and plans is to kind of integrate with the rail project. Mm -hmm. Right now, it wouldn't really make sense for us to have a station out in Pearl City or out in Kapolei because, I mean, you just couldn't really bike from here all the way there. But when the rail does come into town, we'll be able to have these substations. So people will be able to ride from somewhere in Kapolei to the rail station and then take the rail into Honolulu and then take Beaky to their workplace or wherever they're needing to go. And that's just the combined mode of utilizing different forms of transportation is really in the long-term goals. And then the other thing we're, of course, considering is electrification. I mean, that's been adopted in a lot of cities and it would help us expand more into the mountains and, and to Kahala and areas that have just a bit more incline that are more difficult to do on a three-speed bike. So electrification, they do have the electric version of the Beaky bike model that does exist, and we have been testing it and playing around with it a little bit, but that will be at least a year before we see that in Honolulu. Thank you so much for your time, Kelsey. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And that was Bike Share Hawaii's Kelsey Colpitz talking with HPR's Russell Subiano in celebration of Beaky's fifth anniversary and Bike Month in Hawaii. Several free public events are planned, including uh, offering free Beaky rides all day today. We'll have links to all the events and more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. that is it for us today. Tomorrow, we'll continue to talk rail. Share your thoughts. Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard on the show today? Well, all of our uh, episodes are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>